I've had several people tell me that they don't like to be read to and that I should memorize this. Good luck with that wish. <laughs> All right, we have reached our halfway point in this series on the seven churches in Revelation. We're now ready for Christ's message to the believers in Thyatira, which, as you can see on the map, is the next natural stop on that travel circuit. It's about 40 or 50 miles to the east of Pergamum. That's the city we talked about last week. Of the seven cities, Thyatira is the smallest and it's the least significant. And yet, interestingly, the message to them is the longest, covering verses 18 all the way to the end of the chapter. Uh, this fact that there isn't anything all that remarkable about the city, nothing about it stands out or nothing about it is important, means that it has largely escaped the notice of historians through the centuries. And this in turn means that we don't know that much about it, uh, making it somewhat difficult to fully appreciate the background of the passage that we'll be looking at today. But we do know some things, and what we do know will prove to be quite helpful, um, helpful indeed. <clears throat> so, as in previous weeks, we'll start with some background information about the city, and with that in mind, we'll look through the passage verse by verse, focusing mostly on what it is that they are doing wrong. Uh, there are lessons to be learned from their sins and failures, even if our situation here is a bit different. Things might, of course, look differently outwardly, uh, but the root issue and temptations are oftentimes be ones that we will be able to relate to. They are just part of human nature, and hopefully the application for us will become obvious as we work through it. But at the very end, we'll kind of summarize a few of those points. So the geography of this whole region consists of rugged, large, rugged hills and valleys in between these hills, and as expected, long valleys became major routes, roads connecting various cities together. Thyatira is situated at the bottom of one of these long valleys, and the road that ran through it connected the capital city from last week, Pergamum, to everything east of it which means that anyone headed to Pergamon from that direction would have to first go through Thyatira. And it was kind of like the gateway, even, even though it was, again, 40 or 50 miles away. And you might remember from last week that Pergamon served as the capital of Western Asia and did so for 300 years. And Thyatira served, uh, therefore, as a military post to protect it. If an enemy advanced their armies against the capital, Thyatira was there to stop them. Now, there was never, never any real expectation that the soldiers there could actually do that. It was a, just a small post, but it was expected they could at least slow the enemy down. And that was their purpose, to buy as much time as they could for Pergamum uh, so as to get that city ready for battle. And so essentially, this is their purpose in life. They are there to sacrifice themselves in order to save the capital. Um, however, during the time of this writing, the power of Rome is firmly established and there doesn't appear to be any great threats, at least from the east. Now, unlike the other cities that we looked at, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, if you remember them, Thyatira had no special religious significance that would have drawn anyone there. It had uh, temples of Artemis and Apollo, but they were not anything all that remarkable. And unlike Pergamum and Smyrna, it didn't have a cult-like devotion to Rome either. And so there wasn't any big push there to worship the emperor during this time. And so, for the most part, as you can see, this would be a safer city for Christians to live in. Um, kind of boring, drab, not that significant, no great religious activity going on there that would cause mar martyrdom and that sort of thing. 
Uh, now, as we will see, they did face pressure to participate in idol worship, but their resistance to this would result in financial hardship, again, rather than the threat of prison or martyrdom, which leads to this. Though it had no grand temples or other attractions, what it did have going for it was industry and commerce. Thyatira was growing in prosperity. The road it was on was a major trade route, and the people took advantage of that. The primary industry there was that of textiles, manufacturing wool and fabrics, and that of dyes to provide, to provide color to those fabrics. Ceramics and bronze is kind of a thing there as well. Um, now, we don't, of course, want to think of this as having big factories. That wouldn't be the case. We have to keep in mind that it's way before the Industrial Age. And so production of goods took place in small family-owned workshops with maybe just a handful of employees or just maybe the, the individual himself. No fancy machines, everything handmade, and all this took a lot of time, and it just took a lot of work. And so there were a lot of these small workshops throughout the city, and their goods would be transported on that major route to various cities on it and beyond. You might remember, actually, from the book of Acts, that Lydia, an early convert to Christ, um, you might remember her, she was from Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple dyes, Okay. Now, because this city was bustling with all this production, producing of goods, the craftsmen there formed what are called trade guilds, and they are similar to our labor unions today. Labor unions today, you know, they unite workers for various reasons, one of which is to negotiate the best uh, compensation for all their members. Trade guilds, on the other hand, unite workers for primarily the good of the trade itself and for the social aspect. There are, after all, no large corporations to bargain with. These guilds provided opportunities for their members to discuss ways to improve their skills, learn new techniques, teach others the trade, provide apprenticeships, if you will, work together so as to get the best prices on supplies, and so on. And most importantly, to socialize. Fellow craftsmen who have something in common would just naturally enjoy getting together and doing things together. And they often shared together fellowship meals, games, entertainment, and so on. Each guild, a brotherhood, joining together in these um, fraternities, if you will, for mutual edification and camaraderie. Now, at the time, one could find in Thyatira trade guilds for linen workers, makers of outer garments, producers of dyes, leather workers, tanners, and trades not related to textiles like bakers, blacksmiths, silversmiths, and even slave traders. And we know for, from historical sources that these guilds just thrived in Thyatira. And all of that information is relevant to our situation described in today's passage. The pressure Christians faced in this city involved membership in those trade guilds. It was virtually impossible to get a job or hold a job or run a business or anything if you didn't belong to the one associated with your trade and Christians were reluctant to join. Some did, but many didn't. And so what is all the fuss about? It seems harmless enough. So I remember, you know, a long time ago in my mid-20s, early 20s, struggling with the decision to join the Brickmasons Union upon becoming um, an apprentice in that program. And this because, like all unions um, back then, probably today, supported the Democratic Party. 
in um, those days, it was quite conservative in regards to what it is now. But I was a Republican, and this bothered me, but I joined, and thankfully, I was never pressured to vote a certain way. It all ended up being relatively harmless. Well, what the folks in Thyatira faced was something that wasn't all that harmless, much more intense. Each trade guild had its own, you want to take a guess at this, each trade guild had its own patron deity, yep, to which your labors were intended to honor. And all of this, and all that was done was done in the deity's name. That patron deity would be honored at the social events that these trade guilds would have. He would be acknowledged and thanked in the opening prayer. His name would be invoked for a blessing, and statements of devotion and allegiance to him would be made. The dinners and banquets, even if not held in the temple, would involve sacrificing meat to this idol, complete with pagan rituals. And afterwards, the, the deity would be honored with entertainment. And that entertainment consisted of drunkenness, revelry, revelry, I can't even say the word, revel, let's just move on, we all know what it is, carousing, <laughs> and, and fornication, all right, all this sound familiar, stuff, stuff we talked about last week, and there just wasn't a way around this, these guilds, they were not harmless, they were intimately bound up with the worship of pagan gods, and so a Christian faced one of two choices, join the guild, attend the feast, honor the deity, and engage in the immorality, or lose your livelihood. So with this background in mind, let's now read through the passage, we'll start with verse 18 of chapter 2, and if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to follow along. Now, the verses here, to be clear, they don't explicitly mention these trade guilds uh, there in Thyatira, but again, we do know from other historical sources that they were a big thing there, and that information actually helps us to piece together the situation and helps explain the intensity of Christ's warnings and rebukes, and a lot of this doesn't take a lot of imagination once you get the historical background. So in his vision... The glorified Christ says to John, starting in verse 18, write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead." Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold his, this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule over them with an iron scepter and will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from my father. I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who hears, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so let's work through this here. So uh, like others, 
that we've looked at in previous weeks. The message here begins with Jesus identifying himself, the title Son of God, and the two descriptions that follow, eyes like fiery flame and feet like burnished bronze, are of course, again, taken from John's vision in the previous chapter. Son of God, uh, as we can see here, emphasizes Christ's divinity. The purpose for using that title here might actually be to counter Thyatira's temple to Apollo, the city's patron god. Apollo, and we want to take a guess at this, is the son of Zeus, all right, who in the ancient world was revered as the god of all gods. And so when Jesus tells the believers in that city that he is the son of God, he is asserting something here that they need to always remember. There is only one god overall, and it is not Zeus. And the one true God only has one son, and it is not Apollo. The title Son of God is a declaration that he is the one who warrants their true uh, and total allegiance. Now, the image of the fiery eyes and feet glowing like burnished bronze reinforces Christ's role as the heaven-sent divine warrior, terrible and mighty, ready to wage war and judge the world as he tramples out all impurity. And like we saw last week, the image here as well is not one that is warm and friendly. The church in the city needs to be sobered by the threat of Christ's terrible and severe judgment. Indeed, there are sins going on in that church that warrant this judgment. But before Christ gets into that, he begins by dressing the things that please him. And he spells out six good traits. They are strong in good deeds, love, faith, service, or ministry, perseverance, and for doing more than they did at first. So when love and faith characterize a church, the result would be an excess of both service and perseverance. However, no specific examples are given of these, and so we don't really know what the service is that Jesus is commending them for or what it is that they are persevering in. But at the same time, we can be assured that he is not just merely merely patronizing them. There's plenty going on in that church that truly pleases the Lord and his words to them are genuine. And now for what's going on that doesn't please him, which will occupy much of our focus. <clears throat> like Pergamon that we looked at last Sunday, the believers in Thyatira had apparently grown lax in their theological diligence, tolerating heresy and the abhorrent practices that came from that heresy, namely idolatry and sexual immorality. So let's read through that verse again um, one more time in verse 20. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So Pergamon's sin, if you will remember, was connected to that of an Old Testament character named Balaam. Today, Thyatira's sin is connected to that of another Old Testament character, this one named Jezebel. And we've all heard of Jezebel. So apparently what we have here is a prominent woman in that church asserting herself on others by claiming to be a spokesperson for God, a prophetess. And as a prophetess, she claims that she speaks on behalf of God and that what she says has God's full authority and is not to be challenged. And she is misleading others. The passage even says deceiving them. Her heretical teachings and counsel are drawing others straight into these very sins, idolatry and fornication, the same two sins we discussed last Sunday. Jesus rebukes this new Jezebel and those who have embraced her ideas and practices and the whole church for putting up with her. 
Now, toleration, of course, in our culture is celebrated as a noble virtue, but not so much in the Bible and certainly not in Revelation. The fact that the church has allowed for this warrants a firm scolding from the Lord. So, who is this Jezebel and what is she teaching? Well, we don't really know for sure. We can safely assume that this isn't her real name, um, but yet the label fits her quite well. You might remember from First and Second Kings that Jezebel was the name of King, of King Ahab's wife. Uh, she was a prominent and powerful woman who led the Israelites step by step into Baal worship and slavery and sorcery. Ahab was a weak and lazy king who allowed himself to be manipulated by her. And some scholars think that in the same way that Jezebel here in Revelation is the wife of the church's pastor, who, like Ahab, is probably weak and is allowing his wife too much authority. Well, that could be the case. It's an interesting speculation, but I don't think we, we would want to push that too far. Based on what we have here on the text itself, her standing in this church isn't based on her relationship to any church leader, but to her claim that she is a prophet of God. And, um, you know, once somebody makes that claim, <laughs> what do you do? You know, well, there are things to do, but um, that's, that's where she stood. So we, we don't know if the church gave her a platform or just tolerated what she did behind the scenes. Nonetheless, she should have been dealt with. And from what we can tell, the situation here is a bit similar to what we discussed last week regarding temple worship in Pergamum. You might remember some of the arguments used by the Nicolaitans to justify Christians sharing in those religious meals, including the sexual, the sexual immorality that those meals involved. In like manner, this self-proclaimed prophet here in Thyatira was able to, con to convince many in the church to go along with probably the same line of reasoning. You know, something along these lines. Joining these trade guilds was not a problem, and this because participating in those religious feasts would not be a sin. We all know that these deities are not real, and so there's nothing there that is actually being worshipped. And this is an opportunity to connect with your fellow craftsmen, and for the sake of sharing the gospel with them, you should join. This is a God-given opportunity for evangelism. And all that sexual activity, well, God doesn't really care about what our physical bodies do. What counts is our spiritual lives. After all, this is all part of the deep secrets of God that I've been teaching you, fostering our spirituality, connecting with God one-on-one, -on -one, and freeing ourselves from the physical realm, and so on. Or perhaps she argued that idolatry and fornication didn't matter since God would forgive them anyway. So we can't say about this for sure, but putting together all that we know about that culture and what we know about Thyatira and what we and speculating about what arguments might be that Christians might be persuaded by, at, at least at that time, and being aware of the sorts of heresies floating around the churches at the end of the first century, well, it probably more or less went along those lines. So whatever the case, she justified sin. And she was winning over converts and a number of Christians there in Thyatira. And they were giving themselves over to those same sins going on in Pergamum that Jesus strongly rebuked. Idolatry by joining in these religious meals and pagan rituals and fornication, sharing in the entertainment that accompanied those religious meals. Now, we would not want to minimize the pressure that Christians felt in this city. Livelihood, of course, is a big deal. We all need jobs. We all need income. But the threat of losing that hardly compares with what the believers down the road in Pergamum faced, which was martyrdom. The Christians in Thyatira had options. 
Some professions didn't have trade guilds. One might have to settle for something with less opportunities, less pay, less fellowship. And there were always other places you could move to and find work if necessary, and so on. The early church father, Tertullian, we've talked about him in the past. He came along about 50 or 60 years after this. He wrote a widely distributed tract on a similar issue, that of Christian silversmiths who earned their livings by making idols. And he finds this maddening, and he calls on them to stop doing this. And in this, he notes that others have objected to him on it, uh, complaining, well, we must live. What are we to do? And to this, Tertullian responds with, must you live? (laughs) Where faith is concerned, there are no musts. Just leave that out of your language. Bottom line, better to starve to death faithful to the Lord than live if that living means a life of compromise. And here we might actually, you know, take a moment to think about our current setting. You know, we might think of Jack Phillips, for instance, and his example, who, by the way, just lost another court case this past couple weeks. And other bakers and photographers and florists and makers of T-shirts and more who, because of their convictions, refused to allow their labors to advance the godless LGBT agenda. Their resolve, and there are many of them, serve as, as an example for all of us. I fear that some of our own teachers, counselors, those working in the medical field here, and even in retail will soon be facing, soon be facing some really tough decisions. Conflicts at some point, just, they just seem to be inevitable. And once things go sideways, well, no one will be safe. Now, now we may be a long way from the threats of prison and martyrdom. I, I kind of think that we are. But the threat of losing one's job will become more and more real. And uh, for those who refuse to comply with the practices that the Lord will, that the Lord finds abhorrent, I read this week of a pharmacist at CVS who was fired because she would not provide abortifacients to customers. Now, this was in another state. Muffa Pristone, also known as RU46, works to starve and suffocate the unborn baby to slow and painful death. And um, she was unwilling to be a party to that moral crime, and she was fired for it. We have a member of our church here who might face this at some point. Fortunately, that drug isn't legal in Indiana, at least yet. Um, At least it's not legal if it's used to terminate a pregnancy. And fortunately, so far, Walgreens, whom he works for, will allow their pharmacists to follow their religious conscience on such matters. So far. So for the time being, he is safe. And when I talked to him about all this, and as we together anticipated a worst-case scenario, I was quite impressed when he told me that he would walk away from his job if necessary. Under no circumstance would he ever dispense of that drug. And I mean, literally, he is to be commended for this. And, And if he ever faces the threat of financial hardship because of it, I trust that our church will be there for him, right? I hope so or anyone facing something similar. So the next time you see Matt, offer some words of encouragement to him. Um, He deserves them. Now, you and I, we're not facing pressure to worship in pagan temples or share meals that that sacrifice meat to idols, but many of us in the years to come will face pressure to participate in other practices that God abhors. Some of those will be obvious. We could see them coming, and some will probably take us by surprise. We just didn't see it. We just didn't see it until it comes upon us. And it will be natural. As I talked about last week, it's going to be very natural for us to look for ways to justify 
compromises that we will be tempted to make. And that was true for many there in Thyatira. Those who were already weak were naturally primed to buy into those appealing arguments of this woman prophet. She provided the justification they were looking for, hoping for. All right, so as we see in verse 21, the Lord gave her time to repent, gave her a chance to recant her false arguments, renounce her claims as a prophet, set things straight. But as often the case, people love darkness more than the light, as Jesus once said, and she refused. Her blunt and final refusal would, of course, lead to terrible judgment. Christ promises to throw her on a bed of sickness or other translation, a bed of suffering, which is probably a reference to either death or possibly hell itself. Um, even as she sent others to the bed of fornication, so will Christ send her to the bed of distant. Divine judgment, however, was about to fall not only on her, but also to those who followed her counsel, referred to as her children. Um, if they refuse to repent as well, he promises to strike them dead in the same way. The irony here is kind of obvious. Um, uh, they are supposedly avoiding death by joining these trade guilds. I mean, they have convinced themselves that this is the only way to avoid starving to death. But in doing so, they are guaranteeing the certainty of death from Christ himself. So all of this reveals Christ's passion for protecting his church from heresy and sin. That's kind of a really a powerful lesson in here. He will do whatever is necessary to purge it, even if it means that of taking the lives of false teachers. And this, this judging of Jezebel and her followers, as we see in verse 23, furthers his purposes not just in Thyatira, but in all the other churches as well. All the churches will be shaken by the reality that he searches the hearts and minds and will mete out punishment accordingly. It's a sobering thing. Nothing escapes the penetrating eye of our Lord. He sees it all. He judged Thyatira, and if he judged Thyatira, then any church that tolerates heresy and sin can expect to be judged as well. That is clearly the lesson here. So whether that church is in the first century or the 21st century, that will be the case. All right, following these heavy words, Christ acknowledges that there are those who have not polluted themselves by following Jezebel's counsel. He exhorts them to stand firm, to hold on to what they have until he comes. He defines these true believers as those who do not know Satan's deep secrets. Now, we're not exactly sure what's being referred to here. Most likely, he is making a kind of a play on words, turning things around. Um, so follow me with this on, on that. As a self-appointed spokesman for God, Jezebel was probably claiming to know certain truths. Truths that had not been revealed through Christ and the apostles. Secret truths, the deep things of God. And this probably included all those heretical ideas that she was using to deceive others. The idea that one could participate in the sins of one's body without harming one's spirit. Eating a pagan religious meal, sharing in certain rituals, and so on is no big deal because there is no real deity being honored in any of that. And a Christian who has that understanding, that deeper knowledge, can simply go through the motions that there would be nothing to worry about. And that the sexual immorality, well, again, what we do or don't do with our physical bodies is, is irrelevant to our spirituality. True spirituality has to do with our communion with God, has nothing to do with the physical world. And all of this is part of those so-called deeper truths of God, those secret truths that she, as a prophet, was revealing to her followers. 
And so Jesus is using some irony here. What Jezebel is claiming to be the deep secrets of God are actually the deep secrets of Satan. And this should be obvious for those teachings are leading his people into heresy and sin and even apostasy. All right, and finally, the promise for those who overcome. Verses 26 through 28, the one who conquers and keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter and will shatter them like pottery, quoting from Isaiah, just as I have received from my father and I also will give him the morning star. So Christ promises two things to those who do the will to the end, do his will to the end. First, he will give them authority over the nations, as we see there, referring to a prophecy from chapter 30 of Isaiah. And secondly, he promises to give them the morning star. So what is the morning star? Well, you might remember from last week that Christ promised two rewards for the believers at Pergamum, and that those rewards actually went together. They both involved the same blessing. And that appears to be the case here as well, or at least a good possibility. But again, this depends on what the morning star is referring to. Several suggestions have been offered about all this, but the one that seems to be the best explanation involves a prophecy way back in Numbers. And it all comes from, remember the <laughs> Balaam, that guy? All right. How he tried to curse the Israelites, but every time he tried to curse them, a blessing would come out instead because God was intervening. And this went on for multiple times, and God spoke through him. Well, in one of those blessings, Balaam, by God's power, prophesied that a star will come out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. And through the centuries, those words have been understood by the Israelites as a prophecy for the promised Messiah. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. It ties in quite neatly to the prophecy from Isaiah that was quoted in the verse above. So in light of this, it appears that to receive the morning star is to, re is to share in the messianic rule of Christ himself. What is stated literally in the first reward, you know, one is given authority over the nations, is now stated metaphorically in the second reward. Um, though now we might suffer financial, though now those believers in Thyatira might suffer financial hardship because of their faithfulness to Christ, because jobs may be hard to find and limited, they can be assured that the reward promised will far outweigh this temporary hardship. All right, finally, for the conclusion this morning, application should be somewhat obvious. A lot of, the, a lot of it would be similar to what we noted last week. You know, don't, I'm, I'm hoping everyone stopped doing this this past week. Don't go to pagan temples and share in their religious meals. Um, food, eating food devoted to idols. Does anyone... Has anyone given in? Has anyone yielded that temptation? Good. I'd hate to, hate to see that. So probably most of us don't face that too strongly too often. All right. The other one, though, is one that people do face often and quite intensely. Don't yield to sexual immorality. Marriage, again, is God's institution. He designed, it to, he, he, he designed marriage to both sanctify sex and to protect it. Anything outside of marriage is unsanctified, it's unholy, and it is not protected in the sense that it exposes one to numerous risks, physical, mental, emotional, and certainly spiritual. Another lesson is we all share together the responsibility and, yes, the burden of holding each other accountable. If a fellow believer is heading down the path of compromise, we need to step up and intervene. This is the kind of relationship we should have with each other. Jezebel should have never had the opportunity to have that much influence in that church. 
don't join trade guilds or labor unions that will require you to honor a pagan deity. Probably not too much trouble there. But along that line, don't take jobs that would require one to share in the deeds of darkness and be willing to lose your job if that is ever required. Finally, anyone who claims to be a prophet or prophetess will <laughs> be extremely suspicious. Emphasis on extremely. Um, as Paul told the Thessalonians, test all things and avoid every kind of evil. You know, now that we have a set canon of scripture, one must wonder if there really is a need today for that spiritual gift. Um, people who claim to speak on behalf of God with the authority of God are actually placing themselves on equal standing with scripture, with the Bible. And that's, that's pretty bold and should all make us, all, all kinds of red flags should go up whenever we hear that claim. And Thyatira is an example of things can go really bad when his self-proclaimed prophets are tolerated. All right, so next week we will continue on. We're looking at Christ's message to the church at Sardis, beginning there now in ch at, the, at chapter 3. And I would encourage you to read ahead. And um, we got a little bit of time. Any questions from anything that I covered this morning? All right, good. So let's stand and I will dismiss us with these parting words of what Paul wrote to Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So that's your marching orders for this week. Go in Christ's name, enjoy each other, and serve each other in love. You are dismissed.